Growth Through Grief podcast, where we interview individuals just like you dealing with their own journey from loss to growth, along with mental health experts, growth guides, all with the purpose of helping you heal better, improve mind, body, and spirit, and find your new purpose from the loss and the tragedy that you have experienced. Hi, I'm Tom Pasello. I'm your host. I'm a growth evangelist, as well as a fellow widower. Having lost my beautiful bride of 19 years, Judy, some five years ago, almost to the day. My guest today is a very special guest. He's the author of the book, Widower to Widower, and he's Fred Colby. Fred lost his wife of 45 years and mother to their two daughters, Teresa, in 2015 to cancer. I'm so sorry, Fred, for that. Uh, Fred has had a long career in politics, education, nonprofits, worked in leadership, fundraising, and marketing for those. And he leveraged all of that extensive writing experience during those careers to help capture his grief journey and the lessons learned in the important book, Widower to Widower. And I do recommend that book for all widowers. We do have it listed in our tools section as one of the best widower resources. We're here to talk today with Fred about three common challenges he sees in the widower's community that he sees many widowers facing time and again, and how to potentially transcend these to help with healing and growth. Fred, welcome. Hello, Tom. Thank you. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Awesome. So I love origin stories. Tell me how you and Teresa met. <laughs> well, I was attending a community college on my third attempt <laughs> at completing my education. <laughs> and I had met a, a friend there and we would alternate when our parents were gone, hosting parties at each other's houses. <laughs> <laughs> and he had met this uh, gal in one of his classes and told her we we're going to have this big party. Why don't you come by? And she and a group of her friends, all gals, were on their way to Los Angeles for a really big party. <laughs> so they said, we'll stop by for a little bit. Yeah. So when they stopped off, I met Teresa. She was there for one half hour. I had her number. And I knew it was all over when she left. <laughs> That's all we dated wrote. exclusively. Yeah, it was all she wrote. We dated exclusively from that point forward and got married about a year and a half later. That's amazing. And I always <laughs> love how, um, you know, chance, happenstance, maybe fate, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, certainly destiny plays into this. You know, what if she thought the party was too small compared to the big party she had to go in L.A.? You right. know, what if you didn't have that third <laughs> attempt at the community college? Oh, I know, for sure. <laughs> I know. It's so, it's so amazing, but also so precious that we get to be, you know, our, our life partners a lot of times in these special ways. Now, you and Teresa, you built a family with the uh, two children. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, we, uh, I had to complete my college after I left uh, Mesa Community College. I went up to Claremont McKenna College, which is, uh, used to be Claremont Men's College. And I, uh, she worked at Pac Bell, so she was able to work up there while I completed my four-year education. Then we moved back to San Diego, mm -hmm. and uh, it was a bad time for finding employment. So I ended up in retail, as many of us did back then. And uh, worked for Long Strug Store for five years. Wow. Uh, absolutely hated it after the first year. <laughs> but didn't know what else to do. <laughs> so we uh, moved in to near one of the stores I was given the floor management for and um, started having babies. Yeah. Our first 
daughter and then a second daughter three years later. And by that time, I'd moved out of retail into marketing side of things. So I'd uh, had all of Southern California as my area. Then I happened to go to a political campaign hmm. for uh, John Garamendi. He was running for California governor, and I was very impressed by him and his ability to know all the topics that were on the table at the time. And so I did some work for him through the campaign. And after that one was over, I signed up for another campaign and I broke out of that whole retail thing. Um, I started working for nonprofits, uh, primarily fundraising mm -hmm. to start. And uh, at that time, Teresa left uh, Pac Bell and stopped working there, started volunteering in the schools and so on. And uh, we had her family nearby, my family nearby. So it was a great situation for us at that time. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, grew up, the kids grew up, graduated from uh, Scripps High School and uh, I'm sorry, Mira Mesa High School. And uh, at that time, we moved to Oregon for three years. Okay. And then both the daughters, both the daughters moved to Fort Collins, Colorado, huh. <laughs> started having grandbabies. So. You know, what are you going to do? Yeah, we we moved there. to Fort Collins. <laughs> and Fort Collins is not a bad place. Yeah. yeah. That town. Boulder is my not favorite. A, not a bad Collins place. Collins is a good second. Yeah. Yeah. You got the mountains right yeah. there, you know, hour from Estes Park. Yeah. It's a great place. But then we found out in 2014, yeah, about a year before she passed, that she had uh, uterine cancer. Yeah. And she went through the whole gamut of things, surgery, chemo, radiation. And um, during the chemo, I knew something wasn't right mm -hmm. because I'd go to the place where she was getting the chemo at the hospital and, and talking to the other people that were there getting it, they would have a good week and a bad week. Mm -hmm. So you'd have a good week where you kind of recovered quickly. And then you'd have a bad week where it just dragged out through the whole week. Teresa only had one good week. Oh, yeah. So I knew something was not quite right. And we ended up taking her in for a blood transfusion. And she walked in, went out in a wheelchair. Oh. That night she had a heart attack. Uh, we took her into the hospital. They did a complete checkup and found out that the cancer had returned full blast yeah. and that there was nothing else they could do for her. Yeah. So that's when the reality hit for me and I realized there was no getting out of this. Yeah, and you wound up losing her in 2015? Yeah, it was uh, June 30th, 2015, and uh, I was fortunate to be with her. Um, we had called hospice once the hospital said there's nothing else we can do. I loved it. They were there before the day was over, had all the equipment set up in my house, ran my daughters through the instructions and what we had to do. Uh, we took her home that evening, and uh, she was so relieved to be there mm -hmm. rather than in the hospital, yeah. you know, where they're coming in every hour to check your blood pressure, draw blood, you know, know. do it's this, do that. Yeah. Yeah, you can't rest at all. So she um, had about a week. And the good thing about our situation was that um, – I knew all of her friends, so I created a uh, page on Caring Bridge, mm -hmm. uh, which is a godsend. Yeah. It's a godsend. 
through that, I was able just to enter everybody's email addresses in. And all I had to do is like on Facebook, do a post and it would go out to everybody on that list. So they were kept informed. We were able to schedule. My daughter's handled that. Every friend got to come in and say goodbye to her. Oh, that's great. And you could just see her eyes light up. She couldn't talk at this point, but you could just see her eyes light up as each one came mm-hmm. in and was grateful. She got to say that her goodbyes to it. And the night that she passed, um, I knew we were getting close. And I decided to take a nap. So I set the alarm for two hours later so I would be up. I woke up in about an hour, and I heard her breathing was different Mm -hmm. immediately. I knew something had changed. So I went down to be with her. I I knew the way she was breathing that this was different. It was really Mm -hmm. weird. It was kind of like she could inhale, but she couldn't exhale. Mm -hmm. So it's like she's taking life in still, but she couldn't express it Mm -hmm. anymore. And I just stroked her arm, put on some music, sang to her, told her it was okay Mm -hmm. to leave, you know, and uh, probably the most most painful single moment in my life, watching her pass away. Fortunately, my daughters live nearby, so I, I called them both. They both were able to come over and say their goodbyes before we had the mortuary pick her up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry, Fred. Yeah. That, you, those first kind of moments, I know that for us, there was a lot of care prior. And, you know, the food still came after. So yes. the, the community just pulled together greatly. You still had a lot of friends after. And then I would say about a month in for me, and I don't know what it was for you, it kind of just stopped. And then mm-hmm. you were kind of hit with this reality um, that didn't quite, I know for me, didn't quite sink in yeah. right away because there was just so much going on and so much to figure out. And um, how was it for you, those first, that first maybe month after and then the first little while after that? Well, that first week, I was totally numb mm-hmm. and was sleepwalking through the motions you had to do, mm-hmm. you know, arranging for the, uh, we did a uh, celebration of life a week after oh, wow. her yeah. passing. And thank goodness my daughters helped. My three sisters all came, mm-hmm. all volunteered to help in different ways. So we got the event all arranged. After the event, I was very fortunate in that I was able to escape <laughs> to a cabin up in the mountains all by myself. Yeah. And I will tell you, I, I took as much material as I could on grieving because mm-hmm. I had no idea what this thing was that I was going to have to go through. Uh, I didn't find a lot because there just wasn't a lot out mm-hmm. there for men. Um, so I took what I could. But when I got up, up there, the thing that was most important was I went outside and just screamed. I screamed as loud as I could and as long as I could. Mm-hmm. I was just stressed to the max in pain like I hadn't felt before. And I had to express that. So I, I always recommend that if you can do that, do it because mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it is helpful. It's not something you want to do a year later, but it is something you kind of need to do during those first few months. Yeah. It's just let it out. But after that, yeah, you you have to, you have to express it. And I did read what I could find and there was some of it was a little bit helpful, but I, I found when I got home the next week, I had to really start digging 
And I still wasn't finding a lot. The only book I found was at the um, <clears throat> hospice that I was uh, starting to go to for some uh, therapy. And they had a book called uh, When Men Are Left Alone. Hmm. And it's the only other book I found in that period that was helpful. It was written. It's no longer in publication. Unfortunately. Yeah, I know. I haven't so, seen that on Amazon. I was going to ask you about it. Yeah. If you find one, it's like 300 bucks or something, you know, because <laughs> somebody got it at a garage sale. They're trying to sell it. They know there's no others yeah. out there anymore. <laughs> yeah. And Fred, um, you're so right about that. I mean, when I started to do the research and I started to look for help myself, um, you know, your book was one of maybe four, five that are out there. Right. There's more books on how to date widowers than there are actually yes. to help <laughs> widowers, which blew me away. Yeah, yeah. me too. <laughs> so I did find that um, during this period for, I'd say, up to about six months, that my challenge of being able to sleep was horrendous. <laughs> I, I'd i have nights where I was lucky to get two hours wow. just because I was so stressed about everything. And you already are psycho-emotionally totally messed up from the death of your wife. Now you throw on the lack of sleep. Yeah. And it just accentuates it to the max. Dealing with it is really difficult. The only thing that helped me a little bit was going to a therapist. Um, I did find some, well, Eckhart Tolle in particular, mm -hmm. I enjoyed. I found online. He's got um, a lot of little podcast type talks. Mm -hmm. And he has a wonderful demeanor. And he really focuses in on don't dwell in the past. Yep. Don't freak out about the future. Just stay focused on the now. And if you do that, it, it's just a little, makes a little bit better sense and you can manage it better. But if you're in either of those other two places, you're just going to go crazy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because we just <laughs> ruminate on the past of all of the things that we might have, have done, the regrets, the guilt. Uh, and then if yep. we're thinking about the future, which is very uncertain at this time, you know, your partner of how many years left, there's, there's no comfort, yep. you know, going back. And now, you know, there's a future right. that has, uh, is obviously going to get you anxious. Um, so yeah, his new book, <laughs> the power of now, I cannot tell you how powerful that book is. And that's another recommendation mm, in our tools section. So we'll include the link to at the bottom of this uh, transcript uh, for those who are interested Great. along with your book, Fred, on that. So the, the sleep deprivation definitely starts to get you. I love how you were able to escape up by yourself for a while. And I think, honestly, I was afraid to be by myself. Um, I craved yeah, I connection with people um, and almost medicated in that. Uh, medicated in relationship in one way. And then the other thing I did was I went back to old, um, old comfortable things. And for me, work was something I always threw myself yeah. into, especially during the, the most despairing times of my life. And I know a lot of men are like this. So you put on that stoic right. mask, you go back to work, but what are you not mm -hmm. dealing with? You're not dealing with the reality of, hey, your world has just gotten yeah. turned upside down and you probably haven't let out the screams that you need to let out. You haven't let out the right. tears that you need to let out, right? right? So I think it's so good that you were able to get some of that time to be by yourself and also that you went to school. Um, that's the mm -hmm. other thing that I think folks should make sure they're paying attention yep. to in this. It, Fred, you went there with a mission of, uh, I'm going to take grieving books. I'm going to learn. What is this? What am I going through? How can right. I get through it better by learning from other people. 
And also right. not being afraid to go to a therapist as well, which I know some men in particular tend to be reluctant, right? We weren't taught to ask for help. Yeah. We were taught to get up, right. brush it off, you know, don't, don't cry yeah. in front of anyone, you know, be stoic. <laughs> so the thought of going to a therapist and letting out your true feelings and other things, I think is something that I see a lot of widowers struggle with as well. Yeah. And you've got times during that early phases. I know I felt it and almost every widower I talked to validates it is that you, you honestly feel like you're going crazy. Yeah. You know, you, you have no control over your thoughts. They're just all over the friggin' map because mm -hmm. you just had half of you ripped away from you and you don't know who this new, new person is, yeah. you know? So it's, um, it, you can be, I, for me, I'd be walking down the steps and I would just suddenly felt like I was getting punched in the stomach. I'd collapse to the floor, mm -hmm. sobbing, sobbing without tears, I will mention, mm -hmm. because we men, for some reason, have less tear ducts and, and, and uh, things that cause us to cry. Mm -hmm. And so we're kind of just sobbing. It's I, I called it the, uh, what was it? I called it the... Uh, Dry heaves of crying. Oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, that's what it felt like. It was miserable. And so you also, because of this delusionary state you in, you're in, you can't really distinguish between what's real and what's unreal. Yeah. And that's a scary place to be, you know, and you have things um, affecting you in one example. Oh, my God, you're craving your wife. You're craving her to be with you mm -hmm. right now. And I mean physically, yeah. to be able to touch her. You're desperate for it, but you can't do mm -hmm. that. So our mortal mind, <laughs> men's mind, mm -hmm. the way we've been raised is you think, okay, I'll get another woman. <laughs> Have somebody to hug, make love to, just to touch. Yeah. You know, because I, as I explained in the book, my wife, if she had survived me, she would have had 20 close friends that would have been encircling her, embracing her, loving her, touching her. You know, but guys, we're lucky if we got two friends. Yeah. And they don't particularly want to hug us. Yep. <laughs> we're just not trained to do yeah. that. You know, and so it's it's kind of weird the way that it works. And so um, we have to learn how to ask people for support, to ask them to love us. Yeah. You know, and I did that through, I continued my Caring Bridge post to the same group of people, all of Teresa's friends, all of my friends, my family. And that helped me because I stayed in touch with everybody. They felt engaged with my story. Mm -hmm. I'd tell them what the progress was and what I was dealing with. And, you know, and it... um allowed me to stay in touch with a lot of people that otherwise I'm sure I would have lost touch with. And some of those people still call me today and say, Hey Fred, let's go out for a beer. Let's go out and do this. You know? So it's, it's worth the effort. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And not being afraid to <laughs> take that hug. Cause a lot of times we'll push it away. We'll push the help away. We'll push the, yes. the affection yes. away and we need it, especially during these times. Um, let me go back to the, you're, you're not sleeping, sleep deprived. It's something that, you know, several of my brothers and I have had conversation with brother widowers. Um, how did you wind up 
getting to sleep again? Because obviously it's so important. I mean, your mental facilities break down. Physically, you start to break down with so little sleep. In fact, I wear a sleep monitor all the time just to make sure I'm monitoring and getting enough through my exercise and everything else. How did you get to sleep again? And well, it was, yeah. it was a combination of a couple of things you mentioned. So I started working out regularly again. So I do it every morning, mm-hmm. every afternoon. So, and then I, if possible, I get out for a third time and go do a walk. I would listen to um, meditation tapes or Eckhart Tolle mm-hmm. as I was going to bed, try to get my mind off of all the other stuff that was going on. Mm-hmm. I did, I'm adverse to taking medications of any kind, but I did test out with melatonin, Mm -hmm. which is an over-the-counter thing. It did help some, but just like any other drug, it is addictive. Yeah. And when I had to get off of it, I had to gradually cut back my dosage and then just, uh, you know, go through three or four nights of hell before I was able to sleep normally again. So know that caveat. Yeah. (laughs) Definitely. That's great advice because I know it's definitely a challenge that a lot have uh, fallen into. And like you, I, I had to exhaust myself for bed physically uh, and then mentally make sure that I'm listening to the right elements just before bed, whether that be relaxing music or for me, I put on the soothing waves of Santa Barbara, one of my favorite places. And so I had that those waves in the background to kind of lull me to sleep. Now, a lot of widowers, I know they fall into what they refer to, and I'm not going to refer to this because I've learned long enough in this that we all have our different kind of time cycles, but getting stalled or getting stuck in the grief, Mm -hmm. um, you know, two, three years in, they're frustrated in that they're just as depressed or just as triggered or just as whatever. And they feel like they shouldn't be. Um, Talk about why so many fall into depression. I mean, neither of us are clinicians, right? right? And we're not psychologists, but, but let's just call it like not clinical depression, but just, they feel like they're depressed. They feel they can't get out. Right. There's are some common elements I find in the men that are experiencing that. And again, like you say, it's unique for each one of us. So it doesn't apply to every guy, Mm -hmm. but some of the elements are, um, there's a separation from family and friends. Maybe they live in a different place or maybe they've alienated each other. I don't know which it is. So there's nobody to fall back on. Sometimes they literally, and and I could see how it happens. They drive away all those friends and family. Mm -hmm. And as a widower, you have to recognize that, remember how you were before you were a widower? (laughs) When somebody lost their spouse and how you reacted, Mm -hmm. was it any better than your friends are reacting? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone <laughs> no. has a hard time dealing with it. We've got to give grace to ourselves and grace to everyone around us because they're all dealing with loss. Yeah. Too. Keep going, Fred. And they're going to ask you, how are you doing? Yeah. You know, the question we all know we're going to get 200 times each week. Yeah. So you have to understand that and accept that, but challenge yourself to maintain those relationships. Mm-hmm. The other element is I find that some guys fall into the anger. Part. Yeah. Oh, my God, they're pissed off. Maybe they were pissed off before their wife died. I don't know. But they're pissed off at everything. And sometimes there's a legitimate reason. There may be a real bad doctor, mm-hmm. you know, a bad medication. I don't know. But, you know, I had a friend who husband died in the hospital. She had very clear evidence that 
probably there was some malpractice. Mm-hmm. And she asked me, you know, Fred, should I keep pursuing this? I said, do you want to move on? Do you want to be happy again? Do you want to have a real life again? Then let it, let it go. Mm-hmm. Because you're just going to drag yourself through this mire of anger and pity and everything else for another two or three years. If you go to court over yeah. it, who knows if you'll win? Yeah. Is it worth it to, mm-hmm. to give up on the future? So she, uh, she decided not to pursue it, you know. And the other element is, of course, um, alcohol and drugs. Yeah. And as a person who drinks on a regular basis, a couple glasses of wine is kind of my go-to. Uh, I had to really be careful about taking that third glass or that third beer because I was fine up through that, just a little, you know, subdued or whatever. But that third glass, I'd enter the pity pit mm-hmm. and be moaning and groaning and whining for my wife and everything else. And it accomplished nothing, but it, each time I did it, it was trapping me further into it. And I recognized it a while into it. And after that, I limited myself to a maximum of two glasses of wine. And I, I did fine after that. So that's an issue everybody has to be aware of. And then, of course, some people have pre-existing uh, mental issues that they haven't yet dealt mm-hmm. with. And obviously, the loss of your wife is going to aggravate that even further. So if that person more than anybody needs to be seeing a, a grief therapist as soon as possible. I started seeing one within two months yeah. and I'm very grateful I did. Yeah. And, you know, so, it, and I always emphasize it's a grief therapist, not a general therapist <laughs> or counselor. Grief therapists are used to dealing with us and all the weird issues we have. A regular counselor is not, usually prepared for that and cannot is advise you as well as a grief therapist. So I'm not saying there's no counselor, general counselors who can't do it. But for the most part, when I ask somebody and they say, I talked to a counselor, I didn't get any help. I, I asked him, was it a grief counselor or a regular counselor? It was a grief. It was a regular counselor most of the time, yeah, not yeah. always, but most of the yeah. time. And then so. they wonder why after seeing that they're just getting prescribed the antidepressant and maybe not moving on. They're not getting the EMDR for the yes. PTSD or some of the other things that specialists would recommend, you know? Right. Yeah, right. definitely. And, true, true. Yeah, and Fred, <laughs> on the alcohol, um, I've been sober now for five years. The day after my okay. wife passed away, I gave up Good the drinking <laughs> um, because I realized I had a problem through, you know, my grieving processes, as well as I'm sure you did too, you know, as our wives were sick through a lengthy illness, um, we're grieving. We're grieving the loss of them. My wife right. had a brain tumor right. and she was not the same the last year, certainly the last right. two years. I think really for three years prior, she almost became mm. a different person, unfortunately. Yeah. And, you know, there was a loss there that you experienced. And so I was medicating through that, having the third drink, the fourth drink, two bottles of tequila, a bottle right. of Amaretto, a bottle of Grand Marnier a week. I was, yeah. margaritas were my poison of choice at the time. <laughs> yeah. And I overindulged and, you know, it wasn't healthy for me because obviously that is a very right. sugary drink. So I ballooned my weight up to like 250 pounds and I'm now 60, wow. 70 pounds lighter, which is a good thing. Good for you. And, you know, just having the clarity to face this heads on, I think is important. Now, I, I agree in the beginning, it's tough to do that, but I'm an right. anomaly giving it up the day after. I mean, most people need, yes. to, you know, if you're drinking a little bit before, have the one or two glasses of wine to calm yourself mm. down. But do realize that 
if you're medicating with it and you can't say to yourself right. that you're not, then at that point you need to think about cutting back as you did. You've got a limit, a hard limit, or right. perhaps giving it up for a week or two and seeing right. how you feel. And for me, that was all I needed yes. to do was do, you know, a few weeks. And then before you know it, you know, eight pounds had dropped. You're locked in. Dropped. Yeah. And all of a sudden you're like, well, I'm feeling better. I'm not cloudy in the morning. I can deal right. with the kids. I can deal with the business. And then I can deal with my grief a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Totally agree. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's kind of easy now, but I know back then it wasn't, you know, because there were, right. there was definitely alcohol being delivered, given, you know, because people are like, Hey, have a drink. We're, we'll toast your, your late wife. And, uh, I had to, and no, there's, that. yeah, no, there's also a difference between staying home and drinking by yourself. Yeah. And going out with your friends and having a social experience, yep. which is therapeutic for you as well as some other things. Yeah. So, you know, that that's Good point, better than just sitting at home. And I know too many people have done yeah. this with their gallon of vodka, you know, drinking their drinks. And, and then they wonder why they're stuck in their grieving so bad. Absolutely. <laughs> so another um, point that you make in the book and, and that you make in your writing is that many times as widowers, we feel pressure to make big decisions. A lot of mm -hmm. widowers struggle with the familial house that they were in. Uh, they might be unhappy with right. their business or their jobs, and maybe they feel pressured to sell or give away assets, particularly with the late wife. Oh, can I have a ring? Can I have this? She promised right. me this, that, the other thing. Tell us some of the challenges that widowers face there with big decisions and pressure. Yeah. It's, you know, and the generic advice that you hear everywhere is true. <laughs> Don't make any major decisions that first year because there's a good chance they'll be wrong or regrettable. So if, if at all possible, just tell everybody, listen, no major decisions for the first year. Then I'll hear you out mm -hmm. or I will think it through and I will make that decision after I've gotten through this thing and I know that I'm on a more... You're not going to be on a totally solid foundation, yeah. but you'll be on a more solid foundation than you were in the first six months for sure. So that's, that's really important. And, um, you know, some guys, as you mentioned, dive back into work full blast. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, and it, I don't care whether it's a house project or a job job, yeah. you know, it, I did it with my wife in terms of redoing her craft room and sorting all the photos and all the cards mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But um, when you do that, you can do it two ways. You can do it in a way that's therapeutic as when I was looking through all the photographs and going, oh, God, that was a great moment. You know, a few tears. OK, move on yeah. to the next photo. Oh, yeah, that was a great moment. Yeah, a few tears. Move on. Very therapeutic. But if I'm doing it to ignore what has happened mm -hmm. and to not confront it, there's a good chance somewhere down the road, this is going to come back and bite me in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to feel like, oh, man, I should have dealt with that last year. But now I'm and here's the problem. If you dealing with that stuff in your first six months to a year, your friends and neighbors and family are all going, OK, yeah, he's going through mm -hmm. some bad shit. But, you know, we're going to support him, you know. But when you have it happen in year two or year three or year four. They're going, what's wrong with yeah. this guy? Why is he, Why is he regressing? grieving yeah. now? <laughs> yeah. So it, it's very hard to get help yeah. then, even to go back to the hospice and say, hey, now I need counseling support. And they're going, wait, it's been three years. What are you talking about? You know, so you, you really have to 
um, think about how you're going to do this. And I know that's very difficult when your thinking's not too good, sure. but my best advice is to dive into doing what is therapeutic rather than escape. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that means you might have to leave a job. I had to leave mine and I, it was by choice <laughs> and it was the right decision. <laughs> I know that won't be right for everybody else. So, um, you know, any of those major decisions really learn to step back and say, I'm going to take a little while to figure this out. The, the most common and most dangerous thing I've heard happen with reg regularity is there's a second marriage involved. Yeah. So you're with, now married to your second wife. She has kids. You have kids. She dies. Her kids are all saying, hey, give me my share right now. And they can be awful yeah. in how they insist on it. I mean, that may mean you have to sell your house so you can split the assets. And I know one guy who did that mm -hmm. had to do it. You know, but again, if you don't have to, yeah, wait that year. Don't let them drive you, yeah. drive you into an immediate decision because it's not likely to be a great yeah. one. And you're not likely to be uh, talking to a lawyer and really making sure everything's being done properly. And you may have things come back to haunt you for years. To yeah, come. I agree. And I think everyone, you know, if there is a big thing like that where the kids are waiting for a decision or family or bosses are waiting for a decision, mm -hmm. just tell them, look, 12 months, just give me 12 months. It's one year. I've just lost the most important person in my life. I don't even know right. who I am. You've got to give me those 12 months. And then after that, I will decide. I think most people will be comfortable with that. I think when it's hard is they don't know how long that decision is going to take. So I think giving them that right. courtesy is a good one of that time frame. And I love that way to deal with it, Fred. I think that's a good tool. Yeah. Now, we spoke about therapy as a tool. And I kind of, um, right. I didn't address it when you mentioned it. But one of the things I think is really important is that therapy for me was not just about the loss and the loss of my spouse mm -hmm. and the loss of who I was in a lot of image and ego and everything else then, but we really had to right. go way, way back. We had to go in the way back machine to my childhood, my teenage years, and a lot of other issues oh, yeah, that yeah, this yeah. was really amplifying now going through this loss process, things I hadn't dealt with from back then, much less hadn't <laughs> dealt with in the relationship with my wife right. and, and the loss. Talk about that. And did you experience that same thing where there was a lot of foundational work that maybe you hadn't done having not been to a therapist before? Uh, yeah, I had one experience with the therapist when I was like 16 for one visit, yeah. you know, so <laughs> I had avoided this stuff. Me and too. I, unlike you, was more of a, even though I'm gregarious and all that kind of stuff, I kind of keep to myself for the most part. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was a real challenge for me to reach out, but I recognized with as crazy as I felt and unsettled as I felt, I had to have somebody to talk to. And this was stuff I couldn't talk to my wife or kids about. Yeah. I mean, my kids or my family yeah. or friends about it was really deep stuff that was troubling me. And I would agree that some of it's obviously going to be rooted in your past mm -hmm. in some way, how you dealt with things and everything else. And a lot of what the therapist can help us work through without going back. I, if you go to a general counselor, you're going to get a lot of that um, going back deep into your history mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. But with a grief therapist, you tend to stay more focused on what's going on mm -hmm. now and how can we, how can we deal with it? So the more open you are with them about the challenges that you face that maybe are having an impact on what, what's happening now, the better it's going to be. And you just have to, um, 
be willing to be open mm-hmm. and transparent with that person or they can't really help you. Yeah. And they don't tell you what to do. They advise, they advise you on how you can make a decision, how you can get to where you want to go without being intrusive and acting like the expert is going to tell you everything you need to know. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times it's, we yeah. don't have the mental tools or mental framework to put some of the things in. For me, I was dealing, Fred, with a lot of less than issues that had gone back to my dad and, you know, my childhood and teenage years. And I needed to work on those because those were manifesting themselves post the loss of my wife, where I felt less than, Hey, I didn't, I wasn't able to help save her. You know, I was, I was a loser. Right. Right. And so it brought up all of those old feelings. And so we did have to go back to address some of those of what the root was to kind of then get, get over some of the okay. the kind of grief manifestation and how it was manifesting in me, which was this kind of defeatist attitude, like, oh, I had just lost, lost the biggest battle. Right. And I, I talk about that a bit from the other angle, which is to learn to forgive yourself. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of this is about learning to forgive ourselves because sometime during our wife's illness, um, we will feel looking back that we failed mm-hmm. her that we did not get her to the best doctors. We didn't get her to uh, in the treatment mm-hmm. fast enough. We didn't recognize when she was becoming ill, all of these things. And then of course, it's very easy to go back even further and say, geez, I should have been a better mm-hmm. husband. I should have treated her better. I shouldn't have had that argument with her, all those things. And learning to forgive yourself is just such a huge part of the healing process. And you, until you learn to forgive yourself, and express gratitude for the relationship you did have. Mm-hmm. Those until you get to those two things, you probably are still on the healing path. Those things will get you not only on the healing path, but accelerating a little bit faster every month or two as you begin to make these a normal part of your thinking rather than the exceptional. Yeah, I love that. And I love that as kind of a a benchmark for it to strive for and to strive towards. Um, Many of us as widowers, we didn't choose to be alone. We wouldn't be alone normally, right? right? We like relationships. We love having that exclusive partnership. But now we don't have that, but it could lead us because we relied on that a lot in our lives and it was our identity in a lot of ways to maybe get into some serious relationship challenges. Talk about that a little. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> most of the widowers I know of have, have this challenge. Uh, there's, there's, there's some who have had such a great and long relationship in their, in their later seventies or eighties and stuff like that. And they're saying, Fred, I'm just not interested in having any more relationships, you know, <laughs> but I've met some who do, mm-hmm. no matter what their age group might be. Uh, there is a drive um, for many of us to find a new friend, mm-hmm. um, whether it has to be a wife or not, isn't mm-hmm. relevant, but we like need somebody in our life that we can share things with and that we can touch, we can hold that will embrace us and support us all those things, because that's what we're used mm-hmm. to, <laughs> you know, uh, where as women, you'll notice the wid- widows of the world, a lot of them don't care to date anymore. Yeah. They really get tired of it and are just fine. Just having their group of gal friends yeah. and that that's enough for them. But guys, Again, we don't have many close friends, and so we're kind of driven back into this. And there, I, you know, 
the sexual drive is still there for many, many mm -hmm. of us. And it, it's weird. It's kind of like you're friggin' 18 years old again with some of the bodily reactions you start having. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's pretty scary. Yeah, but we're, you know, we're about that mentality as well in our relationship maturity because it's been so long since we've been out there. I know. <laughs> I feel like I'm in middle school with some of the stupid just, you know, how I feel sometimes <laughs> in a relationship. Stupid things I say yeah. or do. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah. And it's, it's uh, you know, and, and again, once you start dating again, you'll be back in that mode that you had the first six months where you won't be able to get sleep and you'll be up with anxiety over your new gal friend or friends. And, you know, are you saying the right things, doing the right yeah. things? What would my wife think? Would she be pissed off at me? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that kind of thing is, it's kind of like, you don't know what's normal. Yeah. And, and a lot of, a lot of this is about returning to a new normalcy mm -hmm. for you. And so I always, try and I preach to the widowers, do not get married in the first year. Yeah. Remember that first year, no major decisions. This is the That's biggest big one. major decision. <laughs> <So> yeah, <laughs> that is a huge one. And I can't tell you how many guys I run into that two, three, four months after their wife has passed, they're, they're moving in with somebody mm -hmm. or they're in a, this is it. This is the new gal friend. This is my chapter two. And I'm going, wait a minute. That's, a little quick, don't you think? Mm -hmm. Do you really think your mental state is in a good place to make that decision? Mm -hmm. Because I will tell you, at least 50% of those relationships fail too, just like they do in regular yeah. marriages. And I would guess Probably it's actually a, a much higher mm -hmm. percentage. Yeah. So, but there is a drive and there is a need. So you just have to accept it is what it is. Yeah. So I, what am I, what am I going to do about it? Well, I'm going to try and protect myself from not being taken advantage of by some cute young gal showing me a picture with her cleavage showing <laughs> the, the go-to picture on match.com and others when you don't age group them properly. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and learning how to date again. I mean, it's so different now. And the women are so different mm -hmm. now. They're more self-confident. They're more independent. Yeah just like we will become if we allow ourselves to wait a year or two before we get any serious about anybody. So it's a process and you have to just kind of enter it as, well, this is going to be a nice little experiment. I'm going to learn how to date again. I'm going to take one gal out, decide whether I want to see her a second time, just have coffee, just a glass of wine, you know, just in, go out just to enjoy yourself put yourself into social mm -hmm. um, situations. Like I joined the breakfast club up in my area, which is people 55 and over who are single. Mm -hmm. And it's about eight women for every guy, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> but I got used to talking to women yeah. again, having to make a real conversation. And I've been a couple that I dated and eventually the woman who I am still with now, five years later. So, you know, it was That's a awesome. good opportunity for me to do it without, every relation being, well, am I going to go to bed with her? Yeah. When you've <laughs> do got this, that kind of do pressure that? that you're putting on yourself, it, it never works. You're anxious all the time. You're not who you need to be, right? So you've got to practice. Yep. And I agree totally. Yep. Get into these networking groups. 
group exercise classes I love. I have my cycle mm -hmm. bar family. I've had a couple of coffees with nice. different people there. <laughs> um, my yoga group, you know, group exercise is a wonderful way. Different hobbies are a wonderful way. And try to get right. them that they have the ratios, Fred, just like you're talking about. It tends to be less scary yeah. when you it's not a room of 50-50 when you do have that better ratio. And then make it not about right. a date or any romantic interest. Just go to coffee. Right. You know, and do that right. several times before ever it leads to dinner. Yeah. I, I see these folks, they go on the dating apps, they're immediately taking someone out for a big dinner or accepting dinner right. on the opposite end if it's a woman. And I'm like, no, just it should be a, a little coffee <laughs> date to see if there's any chemistry and to make sure they're not a, you know, serial killer. Yes. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. Or somebody who wants to take yeah, your money. exactly. And so there's no <laughs> pressure with it. And I think that's the key. I've heard so many men struggle with the dating world when they get back to it. And it's like, you got to take the pressure off. You got to just make it like, I mean, I'm out to make friends and to meet as many, as many people as possible, not as many girlfriends as possible, potential right. future wives as possible. Right. None of that pressure. Right, Fred? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I did at the beginning. I mean, I when I signed up for Match.com, it's like all the single gals, they know when a new guy yeah. comes on because there's, again, many more of them than there are of us. And uh, I had like 10 dates in 10 days with seven different women. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, and, and some of them, you go one date and you go, nah, not yeah. interested. Yeah. So you do learn what am I really looking for if I do want a new friend? And that can be a platonic mm -hmm. friend or a serious romantic friend, either yeah. one. And you learn that, well, for me, I didn't want the gal who just talked about how she was buff and she was running up and down the mountains or this and that. I, said, I don't want to work out four or five hours a day. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> so you, you learn kind of to eliminate the ones that, it's like I did with Grant. Yeah. Right? You eliminate all the opportunities out there that you don't have a chance to get, and you focus in on the ones you do have a chance to get. And then that's what you want. And part <laughs> of that too, Fred, comes to you've got to get out there a little bit to know what you like and don't like. And then also do some introspection. And one of the things that I did was yes. when I started to be more successful in dating was I literally wrote down a list of here's everything that I value, my value system, what it was. And I actually have that posted on the site. Here is my value system. And then I also had a similar list of, well, here's what I'm really looking for in right. a partner. Now, not everyone is going to check every box, and I don't hand the right. the form to someone and say, "Hey, fill this out." Check, you know, like you're going to I hope not. Spend ten minutes filling out the form, and then you check it. It doesn't need to be like that, but you need to do that work to know what you want and don't want, and what you value and don't value, mm -hmm. and and just make sure it's all right. aligned. That there's alignment there, because it is too easy to get fooled by the pretty package for lack of a better term right. with it, you know, right. and someone who's pretty and yeah, lighting, yeah. And we're all drawn to it. And they're paying attention to you kind of thing when we haven't had it for a while, potentially. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. Definitely some risk there. <laughs> and I agree with you, you know, try not to have that year fast rule of you're not going to move in. You're not going to marry. You're not going to really mm -hmm. get totally serious. Doesn't mean you can't be in a platonic relationship. Um, but it does, you just have to make sure that you're not over committing that first year in that yeah. big decision. Do one last word I'd say on this is do allow 
that if you get out there and you do your homework and you kind of figure out who you are mm -hmm. now and kind of figure out what you're really looking for in a woman, do allow for the times when it can strike just like it did when you were 18 yeah. years old. And that's how it happened with me and my new gal friend. Uh, you know, we had seen each other at these events, talked to each other a couple of times. One night we ended up sitting next to each other and talking all night. I walked out of that that bar where the dance bar place and um, said, as I walked out, now that's what I'm looking mm -hmm. for. Just a really nice, sweet gal, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just, and once I dated her a couple more times, I knew this was as good as it was going yeah, to get. <laughs> that lightning does strike. So yeah, I love that. It still, still can yeah. strike. Yes. And there's a couple <laughs> of books as well. I don't know if you've read any of these, but a couple that were really helpful to me too, because just like in the grieving process where you want to learn or the growth okay. process where you want to learn, I think we've got to learn to date again. And so, right. um, you know, the, yes. the book Beyond Boundaries was a big one, being able to set boundaries and understand okay. boundaries. I think that was Getting to Commitment was another okay. book that I read that was a really good one. Nice. And one that I needed work on because I tended to be too nice of a guy was No More mm -hmm. Mr. Nice Guy. And that sounds, it's a no. bad title because it's not a, at all about not right. being a gentleman right. or about being an asshole at all in a relationship. It's quite the opposite. Right. It's just setting boundaries and being... Not not um, having someone walk all over you to the point where you're the one that's giving all the time, and then all of a sudden you explode six months later because you've let them do that. Meanwhile, right. it was your fault that that occurred. Yeah. yeah. So there's yeah. there's things we have to go to school on, and that's definitely one of them is the relationships. Fred, man, we can talk forever, but I know we've got a deadline. I know. What's the one piece <laughs> of advice you'd like to leave our widowers or growth warriors with today? Well, the most important things I tell guys when I first talk to them is know that this is perfectly normal and that you are not going crazy. You're going to be okay, but ask for help and accept it. Yeah, I know you may think you don't need it, but I'm here to tell you, you do, and it can help. Yeah, you don't have to go through this alone. Definitely, Fred. And thank you so much. Right, I'm going to post right. fredcoldy.com. I know that's a resource that people can go to to find out more about the book, um, Widower to Widower. And uh, definitely order that. It's listed on our site as well, so you can find it there. Fred, thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. This has been great. I've enjoyed the conversation. Awesome. Thanks for listening to our Growth Through Grief podcast. If you liked what you heard, hit the like button. Be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date. <laughs> and on the latest episodes. And until next time, my growth warriors, keep growing. <laughs>